Well, we're kicking off the year with a two-part sermon series on the four major heart battles that we all face. Next week, we'll get back into Ecclesiastes, which I'm really excited about. Um, Last week, we talked about anger and anxiety. And um, then that night, I was brushing my teeth and a crown fell off. And so I had a dentist appointment Monday that I wasn't planning on because my crown fell off and, uh, and I had to have the dentist figure out if he could go back on. What I found under the crown, you never want to know what's under a crown. It's really gross. Uh, I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to smell it. That's all that I will say. Uh, but it was like, and it didn't look, like, it looked like something broke off. And I was like, oh my goodness, is this going to turn into a three-unit bridge and a, or an implant or whatever? And I'm driving to the dentist's office, and guess what? I'm filled with anxiety. Then I remembered what I preached on the day before, and I'm like, me and my big mouth. Talking about not worrying about anything, and I'm like, but I've got all these worries now, and what about the financial thing, and this is the beginning of the year, and I was all worried. (gasps) So I stopped, and I prayed about my tooth, because you could pray about anything, and so thank God I got to the dentist. He checked it out. He's like, hey, this is no big deal. I can just clean it up and reattach it, and I was like, thank you. But I immediately was tested in whether or not I would truly want to have an anxious heart or a heart that is at rest. And maybe this past week there was something that tested you in those two areas of anger or anxiety. Those are two major heart challenges that we will face in 2022. Um, Now, the the second two that we are going to talk about today are are, um, also kind of a pair. They kind of go together. We're going to talk about depression and feeling low and then foolishness or folly, kind of the, the thrill of trying to stay on the mountaintop all the time. Uh, so whether you struggle with the lows of life or trying to chase the highs of life, this sermon is really going to be a blessing to you. Um, and I, I'm confident that throughout the next several weeks, you're also going to be tested and you're going to feel like you've been plunged to the very depths or you're going to try and race to the heights. And God wants to meet you in both places. Let's pray one more time and then we'll hear from God's word. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to know where to find you, especially when we feel low, especially when we are trying to get out of that basement, uh, when we feel like the elevator has fallen a hundred floors down and maybe only made it back three floors up, and help us also to, to meet you when we are on the mountaintop, either because life is good or because we demand to only be happy. Uh, We pray, O Lord, that you would meet us at the bottom and at the top of life and show us what that means in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing you can write down is this, Lord, fill me with hope, not despair. Lord, fill me with hope, not despair. We are often in low places in life, aren't we? We can feel sad, down, discouraged, depressed, and many people are there right now. Now, for some people, they learned early on that they were just more emotional people. Maybe from when you were young, you were just kind of more of a melancholy person. You feel all the feels, and often you you have very sad moments, maybe on a daily basis. Um, Maybe when you were younger, every cry was a good cry. You know, like you're just very emotional. And I want to be careful to not at all uh, present this as like sad is bad, okay? Sad in the Bible is not bad. In fact, in the Bible, sad is very good. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. 
And Solomon said that it's better to go into the house of mourning, which means to attend a funeral, than to go in the house of feasting, which is like party time. Because guess what? The funeral teaches you a lot more about life. So there, is, there are treasures in the darkness that, that can't be found in the light. The great news is this. All of God's promises glow in the dark. So no matter how dark things get, no matter how low you feel, uh, God is going to be there. He is there. So we can ask him to fill us with hope, not despair. But we often do feel down, and it comes in many different forms. We could feel lonely. Uh, we can feel disappointed. We can feel pessimistic. We can feel alienated or disheartened or apathetic. These are the many colors of what it is like to feel depressed. Sometimes it's tied to our energy level. We just feel exhausted and drained. We often don't want to be this way. We, we want to be calm. We want to be relaxed. We want to be energized. We want to be content, carefree, motivated, upbeat, cheerful even. We, we want to be that, but we're not. Instead, we feel abandoned or, or crushed, miserable, numb, maybe lethargic. There's, the, there's all of these different facets of feeling depressed. And then it ties into how we feel about ourselves. We can feel worthless or broken or just very fragile. And maybe you're there. Maybe you're there often, or maybe you're there because life has just pushed you there right now. It's time to say, Lord, fill me with hope, not despair. Lord, meet me at my bottom. Lord, lift me up when I'm here. And I don't want to give you a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, if you're feeling that right now, I don't want to give you a list of do's and don'ts. What I want to do is I want to give you three stories this morning under this point. Because I think these three characters in the Bible will resonate with you. And God puts people who are at their very lowest point in the scripture so you know he met them there and he'll meet you there too. So we're going to go to Genesis first. You can turn to Genesis 16. We're going way back in time in Genesis 16. We're like in the area of the patriarchs here, Abraham's day. Genesis 16. And Hagar is a woman who lived in 2000 BC. Now she was an Egyptian slave of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So talk about life goals. I don't know where you want to end up in life, but Hagar is an Egyptian slave in Abraham's household. Uh, not a very bright future ahead of her. Abraham was promised a son, but he was old. You know, that 75, 85, 90 years old, still no son, still no son. From him is supposed to come Israel and eventually Jesus and salvation, but he has no kids. Sarah is barren. So in their frustration, things were taking too long. Uh, Sarah said, well, Abraham, have a baby with, with Hagar, the, the Egyptian servant of mine. So Abraham married her. This is a bad idea. So Abraham married her, and they tried to speed up God's plan by having a baby with Hagar. Uh, well, when things got complicated, um, Sarah, or Hagar ran away. And when she ran away, an angel appeared to her and uh, talked to her and started saying to her that uh, some special things were going to come from her life. Now remember, she's an Egyptian slave. Nothing should come from her life. And if you look at Genesis 16 in verse 7, it said, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. 
The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord, listen, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Put yourself in her shoes. She's just this slave from a different country being carted around. No worth, no value, no rights, no rights whatsoever. And then the family decides she's going to have a baby for this guy, and she doesn't have a say, and things get nasty, and she runs off. And there she is all alone. Could there be a worse place? And, and then God shows up. An angel shows up to talk to this woman. Couldn't there have been better people in the world for an angel to talk to? He meets her there. And this woman had no hope of amounting to anything. And guess what he says? You're pregnant, you'll have a son, named by an angel, Ishmael. And Ishmael means God hears. God hears. Isn't that what you need to know when you're in a situation that you're like, I have no idea how I got to this place, and other people have kind of thrown me here, and God hears. God hears. Isaac is the child of promise, which is why we more often hear about him. Ishmael has a special place in the Bible. And the name God hears is something that will see you through your lower moments. God hears. And then she said, she called God a name. She said, you are a God who sees me. And she said, here I have found the one who looks after me. If, she's like, if God sees me here, he's looking after me. That's what we need to know. When you're in a low place, you need to know God sees you. He hears you. And he's not going to like send an angel to appear to you right there. But the stories in the Bible are in the Bible to show you that if that's his love and his presence in Hagar's life, that's exactly where he's at with you. He's right there. He sees you. He hears you. That's all Job wanted if you read the entire book of Job. All he wanted was an audience with God. That's all he wanted. And when he got it, he was content. He was, game over. That's it. I'm done. This is all I needed to know God was here. That's all he wanted. Well, Hagar went back, and she had the baby. And then when Ishmael was about 16 years old, and Abraham had finally had the child of promise, Isaac, uh, things blew up again, and Sarah finally drove Hagar off for the last time. Abraham released them from the family, and they began to wander through the desert. And so Hagar and her 16-year-old son were in the middle of nowhere, in the desert, in the wilderness, and the water finally ran out. The idea of wilderness in the Bible is a uh, torturous, inconvenient, deadly place. There's no water, there's no food, you're out there, it's hot, and you're really going to die. So nobody wants to go to the wilderness. God made the Israelites stay in the wilderness for how long? How long did he make them stay in the wilderness? 40 years. I, I, I had a Facebook memory that came up 10 years ago where I was doing a family devotion, and I said, and God's people sinned so much that he sent them to the wilderness for 40 years. And the kids were like, that's awesome. And I'm like, what? They're like, that's great. I'm like, you're missing the point. They're like, the wilderness, like in the Wisconsin Dells? And I'm like, no, not the wilderness resort. 
They got real excited about going to the wilderness. They thought God put the Israelites up in this water park for 40 years. I had to clear things up, okay? Nobody wants to go to the wilderness. Nobody. Jesus had to go out into the wilderness for 40 days, right? That's where Satan tempted him. You will find yourself where Hagar found herself. You will find yourself in the wilderness. The water runs out, there's no food, there's no shade, and you have little hope of getting through this in one piece. Hagar got so bad that her son, 16-year-old son, was dying first. She put him under a tree and said, I can't watch him die, and goes off. This is the last day. This is the last day. This is it. And I don't know for you what the, the end of the end of the end, you thought things could get better, but now you are at the end of something. That's where she was. And guess what? God met her there. An angel called from heaven again and said, Do not be afraid. God has heard. So 16 plus years later, same message. God has heard. And God opened her eyes and provided a well of water. She survived. He survived. God was with Ishmael. In fact, he raised him in the desert. She found him a wife from Egypt. And God, listen, God took that dying boy and turned him into an entire nation whose descendants are still on the planet today. God did unbelievable things from the lowest, last possible place. That should comfort your heart. It's not the end for God. It's not game over for God. He hears, he sees, and even at the very bottom, he can do unbelievable things in your life. I hope that this sustains you in your desert. God will provide a well. He listens, he sees, he hears, and he gives you hope. That's Hagar's story. You can find her story in Genesis 12 to 22. Maybe you need to read her story this week to encourage yourself. Okay, second story is the story of Naomi, found in the book of Ruth. Naomi, um, and so you could read the book of Ruth this week if you want to hear this one. But we move from uh, 2000 BC now to about 1200 BC. And in 1200 BC, there was a great famine that came upon Israel in the time of the judges. So we're not sure exactly which judge, but this is the days of like Samson, right? Um, it's before the kings, so David, you know, has not come along yet. The period of the judges, they didn't really have a centralized government or a monarchy. Um, so they were a lot more exposed to problems and dangers. And so 1200 BC, her whole, her whole family left Israel and went to Moab with her two sons, her husband, her two sons, and Naomi. And um, then her husband passed away. Being a widow in the Old Testament was just one of the worst things. You didn't have anybody to provide for you, protect you. Um, you were like a charity case, and often other people looked at you as if it happened because God's mad at you. So there was this spiritual stigma attack. Oh, we don't know what she did, but you know, I mean, he passed along before his time, and he must have done something, or she must have done something. Not a good place to be. Her two sons brought a little joy into her life. They married women from Moab, and one son married Ruth, which is uh, who the book is named after. Ten years went by, no grandkids. And that's not just she doesn't get the Disney trip she was hoping for. The, the, the sons in particular, her sons, were supposed to have kids who would continue the family line and that's the family workforce, working the field, getting the food. If it's just two sons and two daughters-in-law, they're going to have a hard time making, it, making ends meet in a foreign land during a famine. So things are getting worse and worse. Ten years go by, no children. 
And then it says, both of her sons died. Now it's just her and her two daughters-in-law. Oh my goodness. And it's a famine. This is a woman whose life has just ended. Whatever she thought was going to come of it is all gone. She is nobody. She is nothing. She has no hope. She's going to be a beggar the rest of her life. She's going to have to maybe get back to Israel, sell all of her land, and just be a walking charity case. That's it. Things can't get smaller and sadder. And so if you look, um, if, you, if you actually turn to the book of Ruth, Joshua judges Ruth, uh, in, in chapter 1, we hear a little bit of her story. In chapter 1, verse 11, she comes back home. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. So here's what she says. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She just feels like God took it all away. She feels like God did this to her. It's exceedingly bitter, she said. God took away my husband, my two sons. She's like, what can I do for you? I can't marry again and have two more sons so that you can have husbands again. She's like, go away. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Ruth stayed with her. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Moab, she's from Moab. She followed Ruth back home. She followed Ruth back home, or Naomi back home. Check out verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Hey, that's a famous city now, isn't it? Do you know why it's famous? Who was born there? Right, right. But at this point, it's like, um, no big deal. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, uh, the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me my name anymore. Right? Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She renamed herself. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. She's back and she renamed herself. Now maybe you're not going to do that literally. Maybe you're not going to literally tell people, nope, don't, don't call me Sandy, call me Misery. Like, but that's where she was. Call me bitter. She had no joy. She had no hope. But Ruth was such a delight. She went out and found a job, gleaning the crops from the edges of the field. She found a man, and Naomi helped her to kind of court this man, Boaz. And this man just fell in love with these two and bought up the property that Naomi would have lost and married Ruth even though it was likely after 10 years of not having kids that Ruth was probably infertile, uh, he married her. This is all so not by the book. And God blessed Ruth with a miraculous son so that Naomi's family line would continue. And this filled her with joy and life again. 
Now that alone would have been a happy story. Oh, let's make that a hallmark special. What an upper. This woman who lost everything and then, and then her daughter-in-law follows her to a foreign land and then has, gets married and, then they, and they don't lose everything and she has you know, a grandson. That alone would be such a sweet, sweet thing. But then you learn that Ruth had Obed and Obed had Jesse and Jesse had who? King David. This is how Bethlehem gets put on the map. David was from Bethlehem. This, this is where David came from. And David is where Jesus came from. This poor, bitter woman's story couldn't have led to a more joyful ending. Through, what, if, what if God just spoiled it and came down and said, I can't take it anymore. The Savior of the world is going to come from you. I'm not going to let you be sad even for another day. Take that Mara name away and take your joyful name back. But he didn't. He allowed it to play out. And in the end, she couldn't imagine the joy that God was going to bring from her sad story. Look, if you are saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have the power of God in you and you're going to go to heaven, that came from her. From her. Wow. Unbelievable. So I don't know if you feel like rewriting your name bitter, but God will bring joyful, pleasant things from your bottom. Hagar, Naomi, and then Elijah's the third one. We're going to go to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. Elijah was a very emotional prophet. The job of a prophet was not an easy job. He had to confront kings, challenge priests, and the people to keep God's law. Elijah led a solitary life. He announced a great drought, and the wicked king Ahab was on the throne. And then he headed for the hills and lived in the wilderness and was fed by ravens. They didn't have Uber Eats back then. He's in the middle of nowhere, and God uh, brought bird delivery. Food came from a bird every day. Elijah had quite a life. He raised the dead. He was kept alive by a widow. Three years in, it was time for this epic battle to end on top of Mount Carmel. You remember what happened, right? Baal was the rain god, and it hadn't rained in three years, right? Rain god, where's the rain? Rain, rain. Well, Elijah's like, go ahead, prophets of Baal, make it rain. Well, they couldn't do it. And finally, he brought the lightning bolt and the rain, and all those prophets were put to death which is a big problem because the king's wife, Jezebel, remember her? Uh, loved Baal, hated Elijah, threatened his life, and that's when he just lost all hope and ran away. Ran away after the mountaintop moment, and we pick up with him in chapter 19, verse 4. It says in verse 4, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. He prayed to die. Here's what's funny. In God's wisdom, uh, he prayed to die. And what did God do with him in the end? Chariots of fire. <laughs> he didn't even let him die. <laughs> That's what's great. <laughs> nope. And so it went on in um, verse 9. It goes on to say this. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And that might be you in a cave, dark, alone. You're just driven to isolation. Elijah alone in the cave, and he went so far away. Do you know in his journey, he went 250 miles on foot. And he went all the way back to Mount Sinai where the law was given to Moses. This is kind of a picture of not just Elijah, but, but all of Israel going back to the beginning and saying, mission failed. Mission failed. 
I'm back here because everything that's happened from that point on didn't work. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like hundreds of years of history is just amounted to nothing. It would be like you walking to Louisville. And there he was, sitting in a cave. And God said, what are you doing here? Maybe that's what he's saying to you. He's not condemning you. He's questioning you. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And maybe you've gone so far, so far into the darkness and you're there. And and maybe the question God's asking you is, what are you doing here? And Elijah talks back. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I, even I, am only left and they seek to, to my life to take it away. He ranted at God. God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong, this is like Moses again, remember? A great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. The ground was shaking, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire raced by, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. Elijah gave the same rant. Verse 18, God said, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Still small voice. That's all God gave him. He wanted God to shake the world, and God just whispered, what are you doing here? Maybe that's all God's giving you is a still small voice. Elijah would go back and change the rulers of multiple nations and appoint Elisha, who would have twice the spirit that he had. I mean, Elijah still had plenty to do, but he didn't see it. I don't know which of these stories resonates with you, but maybe you need to spend some time with Hagar this week in Genesis 12, or Naomi in the book of Ruth, or Elijah in 1 Kings 17 to 19. Hey, listen, God will see you. He will hear you. When you feel bitter, he'll bring pleasant things that you can't even, you can't even fathom what he's doing. You, you can't even imagine what he's doing when you're at your lowest. And when you're all alone in that cave with your arms folded, back sassing God, he's whispering to you. He's whispering. He's not shaking the ground. He's not rocking the house. He's, he's just whispering to you. And it's time to go back. Number one, Lord, fill me with hope, not despair. Number two, jot this down, Lord, fill me with joy, not folly. So we just went to the bottom, and now we're going to go to the top. Lord, fill me with joy, not folly. This is going to take us to the book of Titus, chapter 2, Titus, chapter 2, in the New Testament. And people right now are so depressed and down and lonely, but at the same time, people right now are so foolish, determined to find that high again, determined to try and put this behind them and finally have some fun. People are traveling like never before. People are consuming pleasurable experiences and content like never before. People are seeking to get out of the basement and to go up to happier, brighter places. 
These two often go together. People who often feel like they've collapsed into the dumps try hard to get up to the top of the mountain. And when they're there, they often do foolish things which plunge them back down into the basement. And then when they're there long enough, then they try and get back up to the top, and it's bottom and top and up and down. Now, I want to be careful here too. Just like I said in the first point, sad is not bad. Having fun is not the problem. Um, The point is, Lord, fill me with joy, not folly. Fill me with joy. God wants you to have pleasure. God wants you to have joy. God wants you to have happiness. So that's not the problem. The problem is when we foolishly chase those highs. Um, When we foolishly chase um, those, and we try and and uh, have those fun, pleasurable, happy experiences, and we won't suffer, and we won't deal with problems, and we won't endure pain, that's when it becomes a problem. People who struggle with wanting to always be on top make foolish choices. A lot of FOMO, fear of missing out, a lot of envy. And they want a thrilling life. Nothing wrong with that. But it can become selfish. It can become all about themselves. They want to be motivated and optimistic and joyful and and pleasant and even hyper. They want to be carefree and happy. They love to be surprised and maybe that's you. Maybe after lockdown after lockdown, you feel restless and annoyed and fed up and done, and you're going to go do things and live your life. But will you be foolish? Will you cross over into folly? Then it becomes compulsive. You can't not be on the top. It becomes envious. They're having more fun than me. It becomes extravagant, and you're overspending. Um, And then after the high, often you get lazy and slothful and numb and restless because it's not fun anymore. And this is all about self-gratification. Tons of impulse control problems. Me time. You feel the need to escape. Maybe this is where you're tempted. God doesn't want you to feel guilty for having a good time, but he wants you to avoid folly. Titus 2 is really a good place to find some sober-minded encouragement. In Titus 2, it gives a lot of uh, encouragement for people in different stages of life. But look at verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Listen, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Listen again, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for what? For good works. This is the call away from ungodliness, worldly passions, carnal indulgences, shameful behavior once and for all, putting that behind you. Lawlessness. Why? Because Christ has come to redeem you, to purify you. He's coming back with heaven. That's the best thing ever. The thing you don't want to miss out on most is that. And because of that, you are living a consecrated life right now. Self-controlled, upright godly. This is the call for the people who are always chasing the next high. How do we express this desire for folly, this foolishness? Well, let me give you some specifics that kind of come up in Scripture. It becomes folly when, jot this down, you're denying reality. You're denying reality. 
you're downplaying some things in your life that have to get right. You're downplaying it. You're denying reality. You're detaching. You're not engaging with that problem or that person or you're detaching. Um, you are puzzling those around you and upsetting them because of just how carefree and no big deal you're making this out in your life. You're not facing reality. And your spouse or your parent or someone else is trying to show you this is important and you have to deal with it and you're just like, no big deal. Denial. You're denying reality. That can make you unsafe if you're denying the reality of a health problem. I'm not going to the doctor. Um, that can make you uninformed. You're denying the reality of a financial situation that's coming up, and you're just denying it. You're just not going there. You don't even want to deal with it. It's unsafe. It's unsafe, and it's uninformed. It's also inconsiderate, because there are other people who are tied to you if you don't get that medical bill situation figured out. They're going to pay the penalty, too. So you can put yourself in a place where when you're denying reality, you're putting yourself in harm's way. Proverbs 22.3 says this, The prudent sees danger, sees it, and hides himself. But the simple go on and suffer for it. You have to see it and you have to avoid what's dangerous. You can't just not see it. Just go on and suffer for it. Don't deny reality. Next, the escaping responsibility. Escaping responsibility. So now you're running away. You denied it for a while, but now you're running away. Uh, you're not showing up to work or you're not working hard. You're not really present in your marriage or in your parenting because it's not fun anymore. And there's pressure for you to escape, to escape the responsibilities that are pushed on you as a student, uh, as an employee. And often this triggers problems with authority, big problems with authority, because they're not fun. They want to take all of your fun away. Parents, bosses, uh, even cops, that's where the crime spree comes from. I just want to have a good time. You're escaping responsibility. And of course, there are tons of excuses along the way. It's everybody else's fault. This can happen in church, too. Let's face it, right now, a lot of serving in church isn't fun because you're trying to get away from COVID. You don't know if those kids in the, in the kids' wing are sick. They're sneezing, they're coughing, right? And you don't want to lose work time. Our worship team, we've got less people serving on it because of turnover and COVID restrictions. And so you show up and it's not as fun as it used to be when there was a full band and a choir, right? So it's just not as fun anymore. And so several people, as happens every year in January, they're like, eh, I just think I'm not going to serve anymore. And they just quit. When, when we kind of need you the most. Um, and so they escape responsibility. Maybe they just book that trip and travel a bunch. Again, it's not bad to do that unless you're running away from responsibilities. Denying reality, escaping responsibility. Jot this down, abusing substances. Abusing substances. Could be alcohol, could be pain medication, could be stimulants or other drugs, but you are covering the problem and um, covering the problem. I was out to eat for breakfast at a restaurant last year, and um, we were sitting there eating breakfast, and a mouse ran out in the restaurant and just sat on the floor like he owned the place. I was like, ew! And there were only like three or four booths taken, and we were all looking at this thing and looking at each other like, what is going on? Someone take care of this. No one came out. And so one guy was sitting there, he just picked up a coffee cup and walked over and put the coffee cup over the mouse and went back and sat down. It might still be there. I don't know. No one took care of it while I was there. If you walk into a restaurant and see a coffee cup on the floor, that's probably the mouse. They covered it up. 
And really, that's what abusing substances does. You're putting the coffee cup over the mouse. And, and you didn't get to the nest, and a lot more of them are coming out. You're just covering the problem. I want to be careful here not to condemn um, medications or anything, especially when you're dealing with depression, when you're dealing with anxiety problems. People who go to the doctor and get informed and ask questions and use medication responsibly have often achieved a much better standard of living. Responsibly, medications are not wrong. And I would never want you to feel guilty for that. But when there's an unhealthy dependency, it could be a problem with dosage or it could be a problem with duration. You're, you're being foolish with the dosage or the duration. Then it could become a problem. And you might need help with that. Ephesians 5.18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. God's Spirit, filling up with God's Spirit, is the way for you to be full of joy, not folly. Jot this down. Reckless relationships. Denying reality, escaping responsibility, reckless relationships. This is, this is one fast track to the top. I'm, and, and in our digital age, where our, Tinder, you're, you can just swipe, swipe, yes, no, whatever. You could have unending, unending every week liaisons with as many people as you want. It's so sick that that's where we are as a country, as a world. Reckless relationships, reckless relationships, it's not the fix you're hoping for. When Jesus met the woman at the well, really being at the well at the heat of day, it was hot, she was coming to the well again, that was kind of a portrait for her life. She had tried to find her satisfaction in relationships and for whatever reason went through man after man after man and Jesus said, go call your husband and come come back. And she said, uh, I have no husband. And Jesus is like, you're right. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. And that was just unthinkable back then. Her under the sun in the heat of day, sweating, coming back to the well again for more water, that is what she was doing with men. Back, back to the well again, it's so hot. Back to the well again, it's so hot. And Jesus said, anyone who drinks from this well is going to be thirsty again. It's not going to fill you up. It's not going to she was all alone. Women didn't do anything alone back then. She should have had all these other women around her. She was an outcast. Hey, this well won't fill you up. And maybe you need to hear that. If you're a run to the next relationship, to the next relationship, to the next relationship, to the next relationship, that one didn't work out. I'm going to feel bad for a month and then move on. This well will never fill you up, ever. It's still hot. You're still lonely. One more bucket isn't going to do it. It's time for that to stop. Jesus said, the water I give you will spring up to eternal life. You'll never be thirsty again. When Jesus is the man in your life, the number one, whether you're a man or a woman, he fills your heart. He's the only one who can do it. If you're a reckless relationship person, you desperately need to make Jesus Christ that central figure in your heart. Denying reality, escaping responsibility, abusing substances, reckless relationships, jot this down, overindulging desires overindulging desires. This is just where there's no restraint on anything, really. Food, screens, shopping, debt. Um, there are laws of pleasure in the Bible. It says in Proverbs 27, 7, one who is full had a good meal, loathes honey. You ever get to that point where you eat and then the waitress says, dessert menu? And you're like, no. Now, maybe at the end of a hard work day the day before, if someone was like chocolate lava cake, you would have been like, yes! But after a really good hearty meal, the pleasure desire goes away. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, 
everything bitter is sweet. Maybe if you've done any fasting in, in, in the past, you did some diet, you know, whatever. People have said this. They've been like, oh, an apple is like gold. Like little things become big things because that's how pleasure works. But if we overindulge our desires and we're, you know, this is what leads to binging, even addictive behavior, online gambling. You fill up, fill up, fill up, fill up, fill up, and then it's, it's too much. And then nothing works. Nothing works, right? So overindulging desires is a sign that folly is the path. So Lord, fill me with joy, not folly. Well, then what exactly does that look like? Well, jot this down. Joy comes from godliness with contentment. Straight out of 1 Timothy 6, 6. Joy comes from godliness with contentment. It says godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness means you're doing it God's way. God's way alone will lead you to everlasting pleasure. Godliness, God's way. And contentment means the boundaries on pleasure you believe protect what is good. Why won't you do it another way? Because you believe that contentment, I have enough, contentment in Christ, this is right, this is my portion, is really what leads to lasting fulfillment. I don't have to chase that high all the time. People who really struggle with this have told me, I feel like every day Satan lies to me and tells me that I'm missing out on what's truly going to make me happy. And I remember when one man told me that, a young man, he's got his whole life ahead of him, I said, I hope you realize that Satan's true plan is to take everything in your life that's fun away. I hope you realize that. I hope you realize that his true plan is to leave you with this when you follow him. But God's plan is to lead you to a kingdom where the streets are made of gold. He can alone make you happy forever. Satan wants to steal everything good in your life, all of your fun, and rob you of lasting pleasure and all companionship. That's his plan. So say, Lord, fill me with joy, not folly. Psalm 32, 8 to 10, we'll close with. It says this. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, meaning you shove something into its mouth and force it to go the right way. Or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Hey, maybe you're in the bottom. Maybe you're, in, you're filled with despair. Ask God to fill you with hope. Maybe you're at the top and you demand to stay there. Jesus alone is better than your best days. He alone can sustain that feeling of joy. Trust him, chase him, look to him, fill up on him. That's the only thing that's going to last in this life and in the next life. We've been handing out um, this sheet too each week. We've got them on the table on the way out too. But I would love for you to set some goals this year for wellness, mind, body, heart, and soul. And what we've been camping on for the last two weeks really ties into heart. So when you get to that part here where it says heart, which of these four heart conditions is really the biggest hang-up for you? Is it anxiety? Is that what you're struggling with? Is it anger? Is it despair? Is it folly and foolishness and chasing the thrill? Have some time with God this week and write out, Lord, here's really my big heart struggle or struggles. Share that with your small group or a friend and say, look, in this year, I'm really inviting God to help me in my heart with, with this area. And will you hold me accountable for that? God will. He will give you a healthy, pure, happy, holy heart this year. But you have to invite him in. Ask, seek, and knock, right? And he says, here I stand at the door and knock. Invite him in, and he will purify your heart. Hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit all this to him. Jesus, we praise you for your, you are good. Your love endures forever. 
And I just pray that you would help us to give our hearts to you this year. Some of us struggle. We battle anger. We've lost the battle with anger. Some of us battle anxiety and it's worrying that controls us. I just pray that you would purify our hearts of all of that. Give us, give us peace. Give us patience. Help us to be humble. Lord, many of us struggle with despair and depression, sadness and sorrow. We're blue and we need you to hear us and see us at our lowest place. We need you to remind us that you can do things we could never even imagine. Unbelievable things. We can become people who display your power, your presence, even at the very end of the end. Meet us there. And Lord, those who are always demanding to be on top, to have that happiness and that, that thrill, Lord, to demand that companionship, people who refuse to be low or they feel like they've been low too long. Oh Lord, I pray that you would put up your protective boundaries over the joy that they seek. Show them that it will only be found in godliness with contentment. That's the only place they will find lasting joy. Pray that you would help them to turn away from the enemy's lies. What he promises is nothing, nothing but pain. Help them to embrace the path that you have set them on and to never give up. And I pray this, O Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.